Welcome to God, Yay or Nay. I'm your host, Noor Kidwai. I'm here to find out how we grow, transform, and become our best selves. How we create meaning in our lives. Come join me on my journey. Welcome to another episode of God, Yay or Nay. This is Noor Kidwai, your host. Thanks for joining me. My guest this week is Sterling Scott. Sterling's a hilarious comedian. He's uh, based out of Edmonton. Uh, he won the San Francisco Comedy Festival. Uh, he's been on Just for Last numerous times. One of my favorite dudes. You're going to enjoy this episode. Uh, please check me out on social media, at Noor Kidwai, Twitter, Facebook, you know all the game, and Instagram as well. And uh, yeah, please like and subscribe to the podcast. But let's get into this one. My man, Sterling Scott. Thank you for having me. Sorry about the last time. Oh, fuck, man. No worries. Uh, it happens. Uh, yo, man, I was actually, like, uh, just, like, uh, looking up some of your shit online just to, you know, just to see some of your stuff. Uh, I found, like, a video of you, like, from four months ago from, like, Edmonton, and you were, like, talking about, like, the racial issues and stuff. That was fucking, like, so good, man. Like, you Well, were... that's the thing. That was the controversial set that got me and the comic strip uh, to not talk anymore. Uh, when I did that performance, I was told by Dino, the manager, that nobody wants to hear your black issues and to not perform that set anymore and that all I do is bum out white people and that he's protecting his brand. And so I told him that was the most racist uh, critique I've ever heard in my life and that um, it was the most disturbing thing I've had to deal with in my career. And uh, he refused to apologize or acknowledge it and said, I don't care. I even said to him, I hope he changes his ways. And he goes, I'm never changing my ways. This is who I am, and I don't give a damn. And uh, you know what I'm saying? So I, uh, I uh, refuse to ever return to the comic strip um, because I refuse to allow somebody who hates black people to profit off of what it is that I do. And so, yeah, you'll never, ever see me set foot in anything owned by Rick Bronson's uh, comedy clubs because they knew about it. They knew about the incident. This happened back in June. And uh, the funny thing about that video footage is that um, Dino didn't know that video footage existed. And he was going around telling everybody that I was bombing. And that that's why he told me not to say what I said. Uh, I'm glad you saw that video and saw how well I was doing. Because he came out and was yelling at me, telling me, uh, you know, all those things. And Celeste Lampa and Scott Belford were in the building and watched it happen. And they, too, have also refused to go back uh, to the comic strip. So that's why, um, I mean, uh, when you look at uh, the Calgary uh, that we just did for Just for Laughs, Just for Laughs called me and asked me to be on the showcase, and I told them that I have to respectfully decline and explain to them the situation, right? Because I wanted them to know that I'm not declining this opportunity because I have any malice or beef with them. Uh, I even said, I'm like, if you could set it up for any other club, I'll go to another city and perform in another club. And uh, they came in and canceled and pulled the contract from the comic strip and then moved it to Calgary. Uh, and that uh, was, a, was a really amazing thing because I never expected that. I never uh, expected anything from anybody, to be honest, because, um, like I said, a lot of people in Edmonton already knew about all of this. and. Um, Nobody really cares, so it is what it is. Damn, dude. Uh, 
Yeah, and, like, that's actually kind of cool that they actually moved uh, the clubs, like, uh, just because of that, because, like, honestly, that's uh, shitty to hear that. I had no idea that was the reason uh, the club got, like, moved. Because, like, uh, yeah, for people who don't know, me and Sterling just did, like, a uh, recording uh, for Just for Laughs uh, uh, for Sirius XM. So, like, um, yeah, and, like, that it moved from Edmonton to Calgary, so I had no idea, like, uh, the, the yeah, reason was because of that. Yeah, so I want to say thank you to um, Zoe. Uh, Zoe, uh, for those of you who don't know, Zoe is what we call the queen of Just for Laughs. And um, for her to make that uh, um, drastic change so quickly and so last minute, uh, just for, for me, um, I highly appreciate it. But also, um, I do think that somebody, you know, stood forward and did something because... Um, I felt uh, I felt really alone in this situation because, you know, uh, I'm watching all these comedians who know what happened to me from Edmonton continue to go to the comic strip and perform and know that the person that I'm talking about is a bad person. Is 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 is, is, is nothing I'm saying sounds absurd of, of of the character of the person I'm talking about, and it's not even that I wanted anybody to boycott the comic strip. It's the fact that um everybody remained silent and that uh they continue to um to do so because they're afraid they're mm -hmm. scared to labor with the club and it's like you're going to the comic strip to perform for free rather than stand against uh racism and of course comic uh edmonton being a predominantly white um uh city and and comedy scene it made me feel very alienated because um, a lot of the white comics who will claim that they are for racial injustice, I mean, against racial injustice, mm -hmm. um, this was their opportunity to make a stand, to make a change, you know what I mean? To stand up and actually say something. We're literally dealing with systemic racism in our own art form, in our own backyard, on our own stage. And they chose to do five minutes for free rather than to uh, stand up uh, against it. And so I felt very, you know what I mean, um, alone. I felt very left out. I felt very, uh, I felt like uh, that people only pay lip service to the situation, you know what I mean? I talked to one guy and he was like, wouldn't it be great? Why can't we just all forget about this? And I was like, that's your white privilege that you could wake up in the morning and just decide to not deal with any of this. Yeah. But this is everyday life that I have to live with and have to deal with and have to uh, uh, fight this confrontation on every meeting that I meet with somebody. So there is no, I wake up and it goes all away. You know what I'm saying? And um, so uh, I still, I do understand that a lot of the comedians in Edmonton, that they're very young and uh, I do understand their fear. Um, but uh, this is why it's important for me to let them know that the power it comes from them, that the comedy does not exist without the comedian, but the comedian exists without the comedy club. And that we need to, as a comedy community, understand and learn that uh, we no longer should allow uh, the people that profit off of our art try to act like they're doing us a favor. You know what I'm saying? Like any manager, any agent, anybody who's acting like, you know, they're doing something for you. No, you're the one who has the art. You're the one that's going to do the show. They're the one that's going to profit from it. 
So how is it that they're doing anything for you? And if anything, it should be that they should be more humble and be like, yo, we're working for you. But we all understand in this comedy game that it's nothing like that. And so this was just like a, 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 a you know, a slap, in the, a, a, a hit in the face of reality of what it really looks like when, you know, pressure is applied. You find that uh, a lot of people fall apart. Um, and um, as much as it hurts me, I still love my Edmonton comedy scene. I still rep Edmonton um, because I do... I do understand that um, the circumstances for a lot of them is that they feel that they have no power and that they feel that they have no hope. And so I hope to make that change within all of them uh, so that they, when the, when the you know, pendulum swims and swings in the other direction, that they're not left feeling the way that I am right now. Mm-hmm. Man, when they, like, the one thing that kind of is, like, annoying, too, about, like, somebody telling you what you can say, like, a lot of these guys are the same people who, like, always scream free speech when they're, like, you can say any fucking joke you want, even if it has, like, a tinge of racism in it, and then, like, when you're out there speaking your mind, like, especially when you're, like, being, like, something that you're completely passionate about, and then they say, like, they just don't want you to say that, it's such a double standard, eh? Well, uh... It's not even a double standard. It was just a racist standard because you've performed at the comic strip before. You've seen people bomb at the comic strip before. I promise you, you've never seen uh, Dino come out of the back screaming at you, telling you that you can't do that set and that that's terrible and that's not what he brought you here for. That's never happened. I mean, the, 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 the double standard is that white comics are allowed to bomb, whereas I'm not. You know what I'm saying? They talk a lot about... Um, Oh, just be funny, just be funny. And I'm like, y'all could never understand what it is I go through. Now, you see, when a white comic has to do a show uh, in front of a black crowd, they'll talk about how crazy it was, how difficult it was, how scared they were. And I'm like, I perform for crowds that are 100% white and 30% of them hate black people every single night. And I have to deal with that and still come out being the best comedian of the night. You guys don't go to the black shows and come out being the best comedian, you know what I'm saying? And uh, whereas I stand strong in both rooms, but if I was to bomb as much as most of these comedians, I would never be given the position. I have to work 10 times harder just to stand in the same mediocre position as somebody else. And um, it's not, uh, it, I don't, I don't even need to be sensitive or soft about it because I'm not trying to be apologetic for anybody. The fact of my caliber and talent in comedy is undeniable. And if anybody wants to argue that, I'll go 45 minute for 45 minute with anybody in this country and I come out the victor. And I can promise you a lot of people don't want that smoke. And even if they do, it's only to get attention because you know you ain't beating me. Um, so... Why is it that I uh, am still in the same position as people who can't hold the, the, the work that I do? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they'll turn around and be like, oh, just be funny, just be funny. I'm like, that's bullshit. That's not, how, that's not how this game works. You know what I'm saying? And so, you know, uh, like I said, I'm just going to continue to uh, show people that you know, I mean, there's power within and that, that power within is that you're the artist, you're the talent, you control shit and to uh, to no longer have fear. You should never uh, be 
you know, doing your passion, which is comedy, in fear. You know what I'm saying? A hundred percent. Especially in fear to somebody who needs you. Yeah, and it's like it just completely takes away your like authenticity if you're like in that fear because like why are you going to speak what you really believe? You're going to start hiding the stuff that you really believe. That's actually their goal is to make sure that you're like not actually like speaking what you really want to. So like hell yeah, you can't have any fear in this game at all. Exactly, and that's what I'm trying to show them because you know, as much as like I say like I'm alone and I'm hurt by the situation um the the comedy scene uh has evolved i mean man we go way back from back in rose bowl days when uh me and you both both started out at those times and to where uh both calgary and edmonton has got to today is phenomenal mm-hmm. you know what i mean the comedians are getting better uh you know what i mean we're getting a lot of young phenoms the scene's growing pre covid i i would easily say that um in terms of like population and pound for pound, I would say that Edmonton and Calgary were the best comedy scenes uh, to do, period, uh, in the country. They were the most friendly, most welcoming, and for the size of the amount of comedians that we had and the amount of rooms that we had, you know what I'm saying? Like we could perform easily from Sunday uh, and in some cases all the way to Friday. You know what I mean? Some cities had open mics on Fridays um, in small bars. So you could literally perform six days a week, you know, working on your craft every week as an amateur. As an amateur, you could do six shows a week. Back when I started uh, my first year of comedy, I only did 12 shows in my first year. And then in my, it took me till my third year before I hit 100 shows. So to now, uh, a first-year comic could hit 100 shows in their first year. That's phenomenal. Yeah. So I'm happy that the scene is evolving and growing, um, but we just need stronger roots. And I say that because when I seen that things went down and how they went down and how everybody reacted, you know what I mean? It's a lot of apologies to your face and a lot of behind your back. So, I mean, we need strong roots as a community. Yeah, hell yeah. Um, like, I remember you were talking about it uh, before, like, you did a big tour for, like, uh, kind of like, uh, I think it was like a banking tour or something, I can't remember, but, like, wasn't that, like, I guess you're kind of performing for a lot of upper-class people because it's, like, a really rich uh, kind of comedy tour, and, like, weren't they kind of doing the same thing about telling you how to perform while, like, the other white comics on the uh, show, like, they didn't even give a shit what they said kind of thing? So uh, to clarify that, uh, it, was a, it was a tour. It was called the Investors Group Tour. And um, the set that I performed that got me on to the tour uh, got changed constantly. Like you know, every time I performed, I would get notes saying, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do the other. Uh, the reason why I accepted that at the time was because, you know, they pay a hell of a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And in fact, me even saying this, I'll probably never do the tour again. But if you're silencing me because of money, if I'm silencing myself because of the fear of losing money, then, you know what I mean? Then I care about money more than my art. And so I'm going to tell the story in its entirety because it's true. Um, the, it's a corporate clean shows. And so every show they would say, 
uh, this was a little too dirty or this was a little too dirty, even though this was the set that I did as a performance in a library in front of them that they accepted. I got a standing ovation doing that set. Um, but you have a handler, you have a person that goes with you from show to show and they get emails and they come and they tell you what you're not allowed to say. So uh, I had a feeling that, you know, at first I was like, come on, how's it every show it's going to be me? Um, but whatever, like I said, the, the paycheck was huge, so I did whatever they said. Um, but then there was one show, and I'll never forget it. It was in a town called Gananoque. It's just outside of Kingston, Ontario. And um, I went there to perform, and I did my set. And uh, the review was that, and I quote, uh, well, I'm paraphrasing because I'm being telling you what was told to me um, by the handler, uh, that one of the investor group people said, it's enough to deal with the fact that we have to have a black guy on the show. We don't want to be reminded that we were once slave owners. And that was a critique for me, that I'm supposed to change my act because they don't want to deal with having a black guy at their show. So can I white it up a little bit more for them? And I told them straight up, I was like, you know what? I'll pull the jokes because the money is, because I, I need the money. You know what I mean? At that point in time, uh, I couldn't afford, like I was in debt. You know what I mean? I was in big debt. And so I needed that money. And I told the handler, I said, listen, I will pull the jokes, but I need you to know that those are the most racist motherfucking comments I've ever heard. And uh, that I'm, I want you to know and acknowledge that that's racist. And, you know, he was like, yeah, you know, I get it. You know, like trying to, you know, do damage control because he realized that he probably shouldn't even have read me that email. Mm. And so he's trying to do damage control. And I was like, listen, listen, listen. I know you guys got to do whatever you got to do to get your money. And you don't care about the fact that they're racist. But don't play like you care with me. You know what I'm saying? Like, just know that that's what just happened. They don't sit here. because, and, and the reason why I want to do that is because I'm tired of people trying to act like racism uh, doesn't exist anymore or that, um, or that we're making it up or that, you know, when you say, when you talk about it, they roll their eyes like, oh, whatever, get over it. Yeah. And it's like when you're seeing it live and in person, when a person is literally telling you that they hate somebody based on the color of their skin and that they're, um, that they are held to a different standard uh, than the other comedians on the show just because of the color of their skin, don't ever sit there and act like this is a comedy show. Imagine what I have to deal with when I go for a loan. Imagine what I deal with when I go to the bank. Imagine what I deal with when I go to the store. Imagine what I deal with when I deal with police officers. If the narrative is so bad and people are so racist that even at a comedy show, they can't stand the color of my skin, understand that those microaggressions and those racial attacks spread far beyond that stage. Mm -hmm. It doesn't go away when I walk away out of that stage. It doesn't go away if you didn't read me that email. It's a reality that I face and I live with on a day-to-day -day basis. And this is why um, I keep trying to instill strength into the minds of these young comics because, uh, like I said, one day the pendulum will swing in a different direction. 
And if you haven't understood how to stand and fight uh, and be strong for yourself and know your own power, uh, you're going to get run over. Like uh, you said, nobody even noticed or even knew about all this stuff happening with me. And my career is moving forward just fine. Right. And even though I'm telling you of all how much is, is difficult and it hurts and the pain and whatever you would see on the on the on the on the surface, it would look like Sterling's just doing fine. Yeah. Uh, but uh, on low, I'm hurt. Right. But now imagine if these guys who the situation ain't even applying to them and they're running scared. Imagine when shit turns on them. There won't be uh, things are looking good on the surface. It'll be pain from the top to the bottom. And a lot of careers will be ended due to not having the uh, the strength to stand up, and especially not to know your own power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Um, I like how you were saying like the narrative. Like, uh, I think this last year has like uh, made me realize a lot more that the narrative's like the big big part of this whole thing. Like, um, and there's the narratives getting pushed by different sides, and um, I don't know. Like, well. How how do you look at the narrative now, like, uh, since these, like, protests have happened? Like, because I, I have seen, like, now there's some efforts from people who are trying to change the narrative, but then you see, like, some efforts from people who are just trying to dig their heels in further, and, like, even, like, with protests and stuff, they just can't even say protests. They have to always say riots or looting and all this shit. So, like, their narrative is just kind of stuck in this one spot, and it's it seems like that's where they can only stay and they can't even, like, look past that, right? Uh, like, how do you see this uh, now, like, since this year's passed? Well, since this year passed, all that we've seen is the truth. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's nothing that's changed. There's no narrative that has changed. Uh, any white person from Alberta can openly admit, if, you're, if they're honest, will openly admit that when they were growing up, especially if they're in their, like, 30s, right, mm-hmm. that up that when they were growing up they didn't meet a lot of black people and what they were taught or knew about black people is what they saw on television and that their philosophy is that what they were taught was that black people are really cool but very dangerous and that they were very afraid of us and some black some white guys will even be as open to say um that they they watch porn and see those pornography black dudes with those massive hogs and then be like, oh, well, if my girl dates a black guy, how am I ever going to follow that? And uh, I could tell you, 90% of the white guys that ever talk to me, they will always ask about my dick. Always. There's always just this penis envy kind of thing where it's like they feel demasculated because of, uh, of, what they, of whatever myths they're being sold on. And then they finally meet a black person, right? And um, then when they meet them, they'll embrace a black person, but not black culture. What I mean by that is you'll find a lot of white people that have a black friend, but you'll never find them in a black club. You'll never find them in around black culture. You never find them at anything to do with black people in large numbers. It's just that one individual that they'll mess with. And so now when a police officer kills a black person or we get uh, wrongly arrested or beaten or brutalized, those same people will say, well, I bet you that they were doing something wrong because the narrative that they have is that the one black person that they know is not the same as the culture. Mm. And the reality is that that one black person that you know uh, is a person. Just like 
every other person that you that you don't know part of the black culture and the fact that you got to know this person and you looked past his skin color well at least uh enough to be his friend or associate is the same way you could have done with all black people you know what i'm saying there's never been uh, a time for any albertan comedian where they walked into a black comedy show and felt like they were going to get beat up because of the color of their skin but it's a damn known fact that as a black comic in Alberta, there's been multiple times where I've been called the N-word, where I've been told to leave town, where I've been told I can't stay in the hotel, where I've been told stay away from the women, all kinds of shit. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, for a fact that when you travel this country, of uh, this, this province of Alberta, that, you know what I mean, uh, you act, say what you want about Calgary and Edmonton, but when you go outside of them places, that's Alberta. Mm-hmm. And anyway, acting like they don't know what I'm talking about is a goddamn liar because Alberta and Saskatchewan are two of the most racist places in Canada. Mm-hmm. So how are racist places in Canada yet we never meet a racist? You know what I'm saying? So the narrative has not changed. All that's been exposed is that we now know that it's in, in the open because one of the things that I said to the people who were like, they want to be allies, how could we help that we're white? I said, you can't help me um, because I'm not the one that's the problem. I'm, black people are not the ones doing shit to white people to deserve this. You know what I mean? The racism is coming from white people. So start in your own home. You know what I'm saying? Start in your own home. I guarantee you, you got a race, you know who your racist family members are. You know who your friends are. But you don't do that conversation with them because it's exhausting. So just imagine this. That racist uncle of yours that works at a, a law firm, you know what I'm saying? And he has to represent a black person and he does a bad job. Or that racist auntie of yours who works customer service and all of a sudden when a black person comes in, it's these are the policies. Or that racist friend of yours who is a cop and you know he's racist and you know how he feels. And then you hear about cops beating us up and it's like, those microaggressions that you avoid in the conversations at home are what come out and apply to my life on a daily basis. Mm. And that's why I say the narrative has not changed. Because since the BLM movement, um, I would say what, about five more black people were murdered by police officers? And just recently in Calgary, they just face planted a black woman in handcuffs into the ground. And then another one where the cop beat the child until his eye fell out. So did the narrative change? No, Hmm. just the reality of racism has been exposed and only a small sliver of it because there's a lot of people who don't even understand when I say systemic racism, which means that the racism is implanted in such a way that it affects whether you're working or not. For example, um, a form of systemic racism that people refuse to acknowledge is the fact that uh, First Nations people that they can be talked about, murdered, spit on, and it's totally acceptable because everybody says that they're bad people. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that is legitimately systemic racism where it's implanted in the system to accept the degradation of these people because the first way that they have to get rid of you, they have to dehumanize you, Mm -hmm. right? So they make you seem like you're something that you're not so that when bad things happen to you, you think, well, they deserved it. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So no narrative has changed. Just been exposed. Just been exposed. Nah, that's a good point. And like, 
Yeah, like uh, how you were saying, like uh, with like uh, First Nations and stuff, like they've been dehumanized so much that like um, that racism is so open in Alberta, especially like I remember growing up and just hearing it all the time, saying said so casually, and it's just like yeah, uh, and then yeah, yep. uh, you're right. and it has not changed. It hasn't. It's just, it's, just um, it's become politically unacceptable to talk bad about black people in public right mm -hmm. however it has not been made uh unacceptable to talk about first nations people negatively in public because people still do it to this day and they don't they do they they, they double down on it and so that is literally what uh we're fighting against and so it's like, how do you um, how do you defend that? And then people are always trying to, you know, it's interesting when you watch how they try to always find the the they try to play like the devil's advocate. I hate when people do that because um, you're looking to try to disprove me because it's fun for you. It's like a game, but the pain and exhaustion of us having to re you know, relive these accounts and talk about these accounts over and over and over again. It's exhausting. It's not a game to us. Mm -hmm. And at some point, most of us just are like, we don't even want to deal with it. We don't even want to talk about it. You know what I'm saying? We just know that it's real and um, that, uh, you know, that we don't, we don't, we know we don't deserve it. And we don't want to be a part of this. And so, you know, we have to make changes ourselves. And a lot of times, if, we were the ones to have to make the changes if black people were the ones that have to make the changes you wouldn't like it you wouldn't like it at all because uh how do we change the mind of a racist can't you know what i'm saying that comes from your own and the only way that we would do it is not to, to change anything it'd just be to fight back you know what i'm saying and little microaggressions and all that shit would just make for for more violence and that's not going to solve the problem that's just going to create more you know, I mean, that's just going to create more unrest uh, between uh, the people. And uh, the minute that we realize that uh, we're human beings and that uh, the color of our skin doesn't deem who we are, uh, then we'll be able to work together as a community for a greater good and solve even more issues. But a lot of the issues that we deal with to this day is based on racism. I mean, it's been said before that the real pandemic that was exposed in 2020 was that racism was the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, and I firmly believe that because it is, it's sickening, it kills our people and it divides and, and hurts us all. And uh, that's why I am strongly against it. And, but I understand it. I know it's real and it doesn't, I am against it, but it, it no longer um, surprises me. Mm. No longer surprises me. Yeah, man. Ah, all right. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, dude. Um, all right, I yeah. wanted to talk a couple. <laughs> I don't want to say that again. I said we can get to lighter, nicer stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe, stuff. maybe. <laughs> I do want to kind of get into a little bit of your comedy career, uh, just because you do have a killer uh, career as well. And I also wanted to talk about your family a, lo a little bit too, because um, 
you have like some of your best jokes, uh, especially on your first album, where we're like about your mom and like uh, you you do like honestly such a like a fun impression of your mom and like uh, just like explaining it. Um, maybe kind of tell us a little bit about your family, your mom, and like kind of like the how she's kind of inspired you and like kind of turned you into the person you are. I am one hundred percent glad that you said those exact words. That who inspired me. Because when people talk about what is my greatest inspiration in comedy, it was my family. I'm not even the funniest person in my family. I'm probably like fourth. You know what I mean? Line. Um, my mother and my uh, my brothers and sisters, all of them, they just have the natural gift of comedy, and they are they're the ones who first showed me dark humor. Like, they would tease you, and then if you got mad, they'd be like, ah, look at you, you got mad. You can't get mad. You can't allow yourself to be taken out of the game. Like, you know what I mean? Like, once you show up, you know what I'm saying? And then one time, uh, one of the greatest lessons that my mother ever taught me was one time my brother was, like, calling me, as classic as brothers do, he was telling me I was adopted. And, um, you know, he just kept saying, you're adopted, you're adopted, you're adopted. And I started crying, and I went to my mom, and I was like, uh, mommy, you know, my Stalin's saying I'm adopted. And she looked at me and she goes, well, are you? And I said, no. And she goes, then what the fuck are you crying about? Nice. If you are adopted, then you embrace that because that's who you are. And can't nobody take from you who you are. But if that's not you, why do you care what they think? And that stuck with me forever because if you go hey you got big lips yes i do have big lips that's not gonna offend me because that is me i embrace me i love me Goddamn right these are big lips and i can't wait to put them on your girlfriend you know what i'm saying <laughs> if somebody says something to me like um you know like they'll try to apply a stereotype to me like a lot of people be like oh i bet you like those collard greens uh, which is uh a classic or great drink, whatever, like people will pull American black jokes and try to like act like that's me. And I'm like, that's how dumb you are. You're literally saying that a person from France and a person from Germany are exactly going to be the same cultures. We're not. I don't know anything about collard greens. That's a Southern American food. I don't know nothing about grape drink. I didn't have juice in my house. We drank water. You know what I mean? Like, so, um, my family gave me the ability to uh, embrace and love who I am. And then my mom, uh, the beautiful thing about those stories when I talk about them is they're true. Like those are real events from my life. My mom really showed up to a track and field meet with a shovel to protect me against getting jumped by a bunch of guys who wanted to rob me when I was 17 years old. You know what I mean? Like, that's a real thing. She gangster like that. My mom <laughs> did, you know, um, like uh, the story when I tell about when my dad died of cancer. And then I tell the story of how my mom was cussing and yelling and, you know, saying all those things. And I'm like, mommy, you're on speakerphone. And she was like, oh, well, tell that bitch I'll meet her in the streets. That's real. That's how she is. She's a gangster. She loves that stuff. And, um, so she taught me um, just to love myself and to undress yourself. As a comedian, you can't, 
you, you have to undress yourself. When I say that, you have to know every flaw about yourself and accept that. You know what I'm saying? Because uh, when you go on stage, if somebody can break that armor, then you lose. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? If somebody's heckling you and you get crazy angry, you lost. You know what I mean? That's exactly what they were teaching me in the house, where if they're teasing me and I get angry, you lost. That's and if you get offended by it, that's your fault. Because if it's not you, you shouldn't be offended by it. And if it is you, you embrace it. So you see, with those little three things, she gave me the foundation without me ever knowing to be able to take on not just life, but any stage in the world. Mm -hmm. Nothing you can tell me about myself I don't already know. And there's nothing you could tell me about myself that's not true that'll make me believe it. Hell yeah. And like uh, how you were saying, like uh, being able to accept yourself, that's the only way you can like learn to love yourself. And like that's such an important uh, lesson. I remember when I was starting comedy, I always had this, uh, it's kind of like uh, just a phrase that people would say, but they say like, um, if you care what other people think, you'll always be their prisoner. So this was just a quote I always loved. And I always used to say that to myself. And it, it was hard the first few years. I like I just uh, I always cared what people think. Like you go mm -hmm. to these shows, and like I always cared, and it it always uh, showed in the type of comedy I wrote because I always wrote comedy that kind of pandered to the crowd a little bit too much, and I never really went for that like kind of inner soul search and where I kind of looked or looked for what I wanted to say on stage, and yeah, it, it takes a while. So like. Mm -hmm. having, have, having family that kind of reinforce that in you as like a, as a child and like you kind of grew up with that mindset uh I, yeah i could imagine that gave you definitely like a little bit of edge when you uh first jumped into the scene eh? yeah it's, it, it, you have to have confidence when you do comedy and it, that's what that gave me that you know from those lessons births confidence and then the comedy aspect was i didn't even have to when I was in high school, I wasn't even telling jokes. I was known as a very funny person, but I wasn't telling jokes. They would just get me to retell the stories that they all saw happen. Mm. You know what I mean? And I always told stories very vividly, you know what I mean? Even in my comedy, but that's how I tell a story. And the reason that came from my dad. My dad, whenever he would tell a story, he would act out the entire story and change his voice for every character and you know what I'm saying? When he's, And this is just how he talks. So when he's telling a story, he embodies the entire thing. You see everything happening in that story. And so when I started retelling stories to people in school, I was doing it like my dad. Mm. And so I would change my voice. I would become different characters at mimicking what I had learned on how to tell a story because I love the way he would tell a story. He would tell a story so well that you know, it wouldn't even be anything funny. It would just be really entertaining. It, you didn't know what genre was gonna come out of his mouth. It could be comedy, it could be drama, it could be action, but whatever it was, he was every character in it. He was, he, he mimed, he would, if he was in a car, he would drive. You know what I mean? If somebody pushed the car, he would move with it, all while telling the story. And if you watch when I perform, that's how I tell the jokes. Like I change my octaves, change my voice. I can. I make it be where you could, the words I use put the vision in your head. And that, my father. Um, and uh, the crazy stories I tell, those are just real things that my mom did. They didn't have, I don't have to punch up nothing. 
<laughs> all I have to do is just tell her story. Like the other day, my grandmother, uh, 88 years old, does edibles. Okay, my grandmother gave my mom edibles without telling her they were edibles. Ah. So she, you want them cookies? Go ahead, eat them cookies. I don't know, maybe she was high, but she let her eat a hundred milligrams of THC no and sent it out into the world. And while my mom was driving, the edibles kicked in and she went crazy. She's like, what's going on? I don't know what's happening to me. <laughs> and then she almost crashed the car. And then my grandmother's response was, man, you exaggerated. Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> this is real. Like, that's the kind of conversations that I'll get when I call them. Like, what happened today? It's like, oh, well, today, you know, your grandmother drugged me and let me go and drive home. And it's like, what is wrong with you guys? Like, I don't have to write the joke. I could just take the way that my dad would tell the story and take my mother's real life accounts. And now you have Sterling Scott. Yeah, there you go, man. Yeah, that's fucking amazing. <laughs> that's actually a pretty damn funny story here from Grandma. It's fucking true. absolutely true story. <laughs> Drugging like, your fucking mom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wanted to actually also ask you about. Um, so, like, uh, I think it was two, three years ago, you did the Seattle Comedy Festival uh, competition, and then you went and did the San Francisco one uh, the year after. Um, now, for people who don't know these competitions, they're international comedy competitions. Um, there's like three, four rounds. You go there and you're performing every night against other comedians and you have to win the night and then win the week and then you move on to the next round. And these are big, uh, like big uh, things in the comedy community. So the first one you did was like in Seattle and you made it all the way to the finals and I think you just uh, missed out uh, or you're a runner up. And then, like, you went back a year later to San Francisco and did that one, and then you fucking won that one. And, like, that's, like, huge. I actually did it three times. Okay. So the very first time was actually San Francisco, um, and I made it to the finals. Uh, when I went to the finals, so that one was a little, there's an asterisk next to that win, but, I mean, whatever. I, I eventually end up winning in the end. So I was in first place going into the finals. The finals were supposed to have five shows. Um, and they didn't book enough shows. And so they're like, winner take all. And I'm like, but I'm already. So then it should have been winner take all from the whole semis. In the semis, I had won three out of the five nights. And I was in first place. So all they did was just add one more show. So I was like, well, I mean, then technically, you know, score-wise, there's no beating me. I win. So then they're like, yeah, that's why we're making it winner-take-all. And I'm like, well, that kind of sucks because I beat you guys up. And then so it was just one show in a casino, and the casino was empty. And uh, I ended up, uh, you know, I got a good spot, but like I said, there was no real crowd, and the judges just didn't like my set, and I ended up being fourth. And so since that was winner take all, I ended up in fourth place in my very first time in the comedy competition. I was San Francisco. I went back the very next year to Seattle. And in Seattle, same situation. I was again in first place. Now this time I was in first place um, in the finals uh, and they had the five shows. And on the last night I was in first place by 0.8 uh, of a point. 
over everybody else, which mathematically the way it worked out was uh, the guy in second, uh, if he wins and I get all fives out of 12, five out of 12 is like bombing. That's like you did terrible. Mm -hmm. um, then he would win, right? Which is really hard because I've been winning every night. You know what I mean? So I went and performed. I thought I had a great set. And I got fives across the board. No way. And lost by point zero two of a point is what I lost by in Seattle. Um, and then I was just like, man, this is rigged. I'm done. Uh, there's, there's no way that two years in a row the same thing's going to happen. Um, and then 2019 came. And 2019 for me was a stagnant year. Nothing was really happening positive to move my career forward and every year i try to make sure i'm doing something that's bigger and better than the previous year mm -hmm. so uh, i submitted and entered for the san francisco comedy competition again from now the third time and um i was in first place every round um so in the prelims first i finished first in the semis i finished first and I was in first place throughout the entire competition in the finals. Again, last night, I am in first place and everybody else is out of the runnings except one person. And they, have, they would have to win and I would have to get a bad set again. So I'm like, oh my God, like this is supposed to be a clean sweep, but here we go again. I did my set, had a great set. I get announced in fourth place again for the night. And the person that was in range of me was announced first. And then again, I was announced second by 0 0.01 of a point. So they were like, that's way too thick. The, the guy who runs the entire festival was like, that's way too close. I don't, I don't think that's the right score. They did a re so now she the person that won has been announced, right? So I shook everybody's hands and you know walked off the stage, and I walked off the stage and I walked. It was on a vineyard and I walked into a a, a great a, a grape vineyard patch of bushes and trees and I laid on the ground in the dirt and just started crying. I was like, "What do you give me a sign? What do you want from me, God? Like, I'm winning." Every time I'm crushing everywhere I go. Why is it every time that something is supposed to be within reach of me, it's being raw? I'm being robbed. Like I've, I've been robbed. So I cried in the bush. Not gonna lie, about an hour. And uh, not ashamed to say I cried. If you are a comedian and you've never cried, cried yet in your career, then you haven't been doing comedy long enough. <laughs> man crying in comedy is a real thing yep. so I'm playing in the bush crying i cried for about a i'd say about 45 minutes to an hour i don't know i was just staring at the sky to hurt and i said to myself you're supposed to take your wins with the same respect that you take your losses you're being disrespectful right now get up dust yourself off and go and apologize that you were not standing and taking pictures with them and whatever so I go back to the house where we're all staying and the woman who won is packing her car 
and just being tears, just tears coming down her face. She's being consoled by her husband and the promoter that runs the entire event. And he looks at me and he goes, I'm so sorry, Sterling, you're the winner. And I was like, that's the worst way to win a competition. Turns out it was a miscount. I came second overall in that performance, not fourth. And the girl that, that was named the winner, she came fourth and somebody else won. So uh, it was a miscount. It was literally like a miscount of the uh, Steve Harvey miscount. Holy and shit. Had went home already and she got told after everybody went home that she was not the champion and that I was. And I didn't know because I was in a bush crying in the field. So now <laughs> I get I'm champion and I'm sitting there like, you can't celebrate because the girl who thought she won so, uh, is crying in tears. And, and you're sitting there like, I'm so sorry. You know what I mean? Like it was the weirdest win ever. <laughs> because I'm the first black Canadian in history to ever in 45 years win the San Francisco comedy competition. And I'm still currently the champ because uh, they had to postpone the 2020s. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're, I'm still listed as their champ. I'm still the San Francisco. I'm, sorry. I'm the first one in 45 years to pull it off. as a, I'm the second Canadian in history. And I'm the uh, first black Canadian in history. So uh, it's a, I think that was the sign I was looking for when I was laying in the bush that, um, you know, not to give up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, not to give up. That no matter what the people say, that the truth will finally come forward and that eventually I'm going to win. Because that's the thing with comedy that I hope people learn. Don't be afraid of the no's. You only need one yes. Mm. And that's it. Once you get that one yes, you're on your way. Yeah, just be prepared for that one yes. Practice every single day for that one yes. Because I try to teach young comics, every set you do, whether it's a new set, whether it's a club set, I don't care who's in the room, who's headlining, every set you do, perform as if you're trying to be the best. Because one day, you're going to be called on to do that. And if you haven't been living that way, if you haven't been training to constantly be the best, you're going to bomb. You're not going to do well. But for me, it's just another day. It's just another day for me. So uh, that sign that I got in that competition that I won, um, it wasn't for anything but for me. Because um, I wanted to know, can I handle the pressure? Can I take on you know, people in their own hometown. Is my comedy that good that I can go from city to city? Because what it is, it's 18 shows over three weeks in every city in Northern California. And well, 18 cities in Northern California, every city's two and a half hours apart, sometimes further. You have to pay for your own travel. You have to pay for your own accommodations. You have to pay for your own food. So your spirit is tested more than anything um, because, and I'm like, I don't even know who I am. I don't know if I'm funny. I don't think I'm good. 
because every night you're judged. You go on stage and then there's a number put beside your art. Then you, then there's a ranking and it always happens. The first three days, everybody's friends, but then day four and five is where the top seven are, because only top five move on. Yeah. 16 in the first round, five move on. That's crazy. So imagine that 11 people are going home after the first round. And uh, a lot of them are discouraged and give up and they don't care anymore. And then you go into the semis where it's 10 people and five move on, half are going home. And you know what I mean? You start to see people, the, the, the stress, the travel wearing on them. And I wanted to see, do I love comedy enough to weather any storm? and still come out being a champion. And I did. And uh, all that competition taught me was that I'm ready. I'm ready to be the star that I believe I am. Fuck yeah, buddy. That's, uh, yeah, that's crazy. To, that's a crazy story. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Um, it actually segues into uh, the last question of the podcast. This is the name of the episode. So uh, Sterling Scott, God yay or nay? I'm going to, um, God, in the sense that people uh, are portraying it today, I'm going to say nay. Um, I believe God is within us. I believe if you were to look at what they say in the Bible and then compare it to yourself, for example, if God is made in your image, it means he looks like you. If God helps those who help themselves, it means that you help yourself, right? If, if God is the one that creates life, that's human beings, right? You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Everything they're talking about when they're saying is godly is us. But I believe that people don't want to believe the godliness within themselves because then they have to be held accountable for their actions. Mm. Because you see, as a human, we make mistakes. But as a God, you can't. And that's a lot of responsibility for people because they want to be able to put the blame on somebody else. You know what I'm saying? We're in a society right now where people want to blame somebody else for everything, but never for their own actions, never for their own, never for their own mistakes and their own missteps. Even when their own mistakes happen, they put it off on somebody else. So if, uh, and I believe that, you know, like I do mushrooms and shit. And uh, when you do drugs like that you start to realize the bigger picture um that you are not uh it's not one you're, you know what i mean like you're you're just one stitch in this giant cloth mm. and um that stitch is important don't get it twisted but you start to realize that there's a connectivity with energy um with spirits you know what I'm saying? Not spirits in the terms of ghosts. I'm talking about whenever you see a dead body and you see a live one, and they don't look the same. There's yeah. something that's just a shell. That's just a husk. That life that once coursed through that, that energy, that thing that just dispels after death, that energy and connectivity is something that is prevalent in everything in this planet. And... Uh, so I'm, I'm what they would say, the annoying people, where it's like, I see things in a spiritual sense. Um, but the idea that there's uh, 
the Christian God where it's like you die and then you go up to the clouds and you're in heaven. I don't believe in that at all. Um, um, I just, I don't, I don't, uh, there's, there's no, when you look at their own books, the number one thing that they tell you is to have faith. That's just a cop-out way of saying, we don't know the answers either, man. We weren't here when this book was written. And, uh, so yeah, no, I do not believe in God in the sense of the uh, benevolent creator whom we have to answer to in the afterlife. <laughs> all right, man. Thanks for that answer. Uh, I loved it. Um, all right, buddy. That was our uh, podcast. Uh, let people know about your podcast or uh, let them know about where they can get a hold of you. Uh, anything you want to promote, uh, do it right now, man. I uh, Yes, I do have a podcast. It's just a lot of me talking shit, and it's called The Comedy Reject. And uh, you can find that on Spotify, Apple Music, all that stuff. And I just released my brand new album. I believe it's going to win a Juno. Uh, I, it's, I, it's the best album I've ever done, and it's not even my best jokes. It's called Corporate Clean. And as a comedian, you already know that entitles. But yeah, it's a 100% clean album. Well, 100% with an asterisk. Uh, <laughs> there's one joke in the, the the bonus track is not clean, but the album is clean. And yeah, it's a clean 45-minute set called Corporate Clean. You can find it today on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, Google Play. It's under Sterling V. Scott Corporate Clean. Please give it a listen. It is some of my best work. And it's also released under my own record label, Sterling Records. So uh, Sterling Records' very first album is mine. And uh, I submitted it for a Juno. And uh, I have really high hopes of a nomination and possibly winning it. Awesome, dude. Fucking thanks so much, Sterling. Thank you, man. Thank you so much for having me, Norris. It's a pleasure and an honor as always. All right, that was this week's episode. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I appreciate it. Please subscribe to the podcast. Give it a good rating. It really does help. And also check me out on social media. On Instagram and Twitter, it's at NewerKidY. On Facebook, it's NewerKidY Comedian. I'm constantly putting updates about the podcast. When new ones come out, I put up podcast clips. And, uh, yeah, I also put up comedy stuff, comedy dates, comedy clips and different stuff like that so uh, you can come check out have a laugh and get keep up to date on the podcast until next time this is another episode of god yay or nay